Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today, we're talking to Paul Pozzoli, one of the senior leaders in the commodities sector. Paul's career mapped many of the fundamental changes that happened in the commodities sector over the last 25 years, working for merchants, banks, and then nearly for a trading house. But there's a more profound story that we're going to tell in this podcast, one of talent, one of community, and one of individuals that culminates in Paul running a non-profit high school and subsequently launching CareerSpring, an organisation I hope that will profoundly change the lives of thousands of individuals and their companies for the better. Over the course of the conversation, we map through Paul's career in the commodities world, some of the stories that came out of Enron and then Calpine, Bear Stearns, and many of these stories are archetypal of the challenges and opportunities that many people in the commodities sector have faced on this volatile journey. I do hope you'll listen to the last 15 minutes when we go into Paul's career change, working for Christo Ray as president of the high school, and then launching CareerSpring, a platform whose goal is to get low-income and first-generation kids connected to organisations and companies to subsequently have thriving careers. And I think after listening to this, you, like me, will agree that Paul is a remarkable individual. So rather than ask at this time for a review like we normally do, I'd like to urge you to go to CareerSpring's website, explore it, sign up to be a counsellor, and get your company and organisation, if you are in North America, to be partners and access the talent and provide the opportunities to those individuals that Paul and team are working closely with. I hope you enjoy the episode. Right, well, Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So uh, this is a little bit of a departure from our typical episodes in that we are not we're not focusing on a particular topic, or in this case, the topic is an individual is you. And there's sort of a twin track to this discussion. One is a, a career in commodities, which I don't know if you would appreciate the analogy, but kind of like Winston Churchill, you sort of popped up at all the important moments and events that have defined the industry over the last 20 years. But also the other track being very close to my heart about people, about leadership and about talent and development. And we will intertwine both of those. Can we just start, I guess, at the with perhaps a, a step back? And you know, you have you were in the commodities sector from really its inception, as at least energy trading's inception, um, all the way through to only a few years ago. Can you just, I guess, before we dig into the detail and the stories that come out of this, can you just give us kind of, I guess, the long view, your perception of how the how that world has changed in that period? Sure. Yeah. I woke up this morning and I was reflecting on my career, knowing that we were going to have this call. And and I'm I'm definitely grateful, but but it's hard to believe everything that happened over those 20 years. It was a wild ride. And I spent, as you know, I spent most of that time in power, natural gas, coal and emissions, less time in crude and products. But during my career, the Winston Churchill, I don't know, but I definitely experienced <laughs> some pretty big wins and, and some equally impressive losses, both literally and figuratively. But as you said, my career tracked pretty closely to what was happening in the industry. I mean, Enron, you know, I started at Enron. Enron really created the foundation for energy trading. And then we had the rise and fall, the energy merchants, the, the, the banks and big oil stepped in to fill the gap. And then ultimately, after regulatory pressure on the banks, the trading houses emerged as physical players, at least in power and natural gas. They were already in oil in a big way. So I guess you could say I sort of participated in, in all those transitions and was to a certain extent running ahead of the tidal wave most of my career. but. But I absolutely love the business and um, made, made in, incredible friends. It's hard to replicate, you know, the highs and the lows, the camaraderie, the intensity of a trade floor environment. So, you know, that will that will always be a special time in my life for sure. Yeah, yeah, and you know, for I guess people within the 
I guess the North American energy trading community know you very well, and a lot of these names are going to be very familiar in the companies. But it is fascinating, as you say, how your career tracked the arc of the major participants. And in some ways, as you say, you you describe it as running ahead of the tidal wave. There's also an element of you being you know at the tiller on some of these changes as well, which we'll get into. Okay, so you start with with tell us about how you started with Enron and, and the journey there. Sure. Yeah, I started at Enron in 95 as an associate after graduating from business school. I was at Kellogg and, you know, like many of my peers, I I had planned on going into investment banking. Uh, But my roommate was a Goldman guy and he said, you know, there's this company Enron and they're going to be here tonight. You should go listen. And Enron came to the school and it was uh, a guy that ultimately worked for Jay Fitzgerald. And, And he was talking about deregulation of the natural gas markets and the opening of the power markets and basically saying it would be like the bond markets in the 80s. And that was exciting. And, and I'd worked at Cooper's and Libran before that as a CPA and they paid for my MBA, but I knew I didn't want to be an accountant. And I definitely wasn't wired for consulting. You know, I, I interviewed with one consulting firm, McKinsey, and the woman said something like, um, you know, I, I may just ask you to spent a few weeks in a room just thinking about an issue. And that that literally <laughs> sounded like solitary confinement to me. So I knew I didn't want to be a consultant. And investment banking was sort of a means to an end for me. So the opportunity with Enron to, you know, develop markets, be at the ground floor, something big resonated with me. And I think it did for the other 50 or so associates that joined that year, uh, you know, from the top business schools in the US. And some pretty famous names in that associate group, which you and I have talked historically about this it's fascinating in some ways that you know we're going to come on to a story about you know that everyone knows the other story of Enron but the real story that you and I know is one of an incredible talent development machine and individuals that have gone on to be leaders within this sector and actually be at the end of that very front forefront of things like energy transition today you know Sonova etc we've mentioned some of these names but it's fascinating that Enron was there recruiting from the top business schools and would continue to do so for the next six years or so. Today, when you look at the talent landscape, that's, that's, you know, that's not, you know, people aren't naturally thinking they want to go into energy trading or the oil and gas world, right, which is a bit of a challenge the industry faces. But an incredible cohort that you joined, you know, and I could, can you just talk to that sort of, you know, how was it that Enron seemed to have cracked this talent nut so well? Yeah, you know, and it also attracted people, I think, that had the courage not to take the typical path, right? Not to go into equities or fixed income. Or maybe in my case, I didn't have that many great alternatives, right? But many of my peers had amazing opportunities. I I love my time at Enron. You know, it was, and I think most people know this, but very high energy, innovative culture, and, and an excellent training ground for young talent. You know, we learned how to evaluate risk, bucket risk, manage risk. We learned how to structure deals, of course, and develop new markets. And we had a rotational program, but it was it was definitely every man for himself or, or every woman for herself. So, you know, most people, it was like a race to get to a permanent seat, right? You go to power trading. If you were lucky enough to get into power trading, you'd sit down like, I'm not budging, right? It was that kind of thing. But it was a culture of, I already said, innovation, meritocracy. It was competitive, you know, very much uh, survival of the fittest. And as, as you said, it became the training ground for leaders for the energy industry for the next few decades. I mean, many, many of my peers from those associate and analyst classes ended up running very big businesses across the industry. And many of them, Stu Staley, Bill Reed, they're still doing it today. We, we really enjoyed our time there. And I think most of us had a great time outside of work too. You know, it was it was definitely a work hard, play hard mindset. And most of my best friends today still came out of that class at Enron. Yeah, and you know, the, the sort of the talent story of Enron is one of you know every year the bottom ten percent got cut. Yeah, quite ruthless. But really, the the story for me is about the the meritocracy that you mentioned because it's worth pausing. I mean, how old were you at Enron, and how senior did you get? I mean, this, the age of you guys and girls was extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, I was 20. I think I was 25 when I got there. And, you know, I left as a director. So I wasn't that senior. But, uh, you know, I left when I was 29. Uh, but, yeah, it was, a young, it was a young group, which, you know, I think, you know, as you think about what happened with Enron, 
you know, I left in 99 before the collapse, but, but I definitely didn't ever, ever expect that to happen. I mean, we were making a ton of money on the, in the trading business and then Enron online really took off after I left. But I think there were just too many significant failed investments, you know, the power plant in India, broadband, retail, whatever, you know, I don't, I, I wasn't there for, for all of that, but, and then the actions of a few bad actors precipitated, um, a run on the bank, which crushed the cash cow trading and, and then destroyed a solid company, hurt a lot of people. So, but, you know, the point about being young, it's probably the fact that, you know, the management was pretty young too, had an impact on that. Yeah. I mean, pretty ballsy leaving Enron at 29 in 99. I mean, what, <laughs> why did you do that? And where did you go? Yeah, I was, I, looking back, I, I was a bit naive but I was always restless. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a person that likes to be in charge of things, which is a, I guess sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes not so much. Yeah. I left when I was 29 to set up the trading business for Calpine. And that was a tough decision primarily because I greatly respected uh, the people I worked for at Enron and, and, and they were telling me I was out of my mind, right? You know, I was only a director, but you know, I'd appear like I had a pretty good runway ahead of me. Yeah, and people forget that Enron was, you know, consistently named the most innovative company in the world, and everything in Houston was Enron. Even the baseball stadium was Enron Field. But what was happening in the industry was interesting. In the late '90s, uh, it was a time when all the merchants were really starting to ramp up. You had Aquila and Williams and El Paso and Dynegy and Merritt and Reliant, and even the AEP set up a very big trading business, very successful trading business in Columbus. And most of them had a, had a merchant generation business they were developing. It just made sense at the time to build combined cycle, natural gas, fire generation. Calpine was the most aggressive developer of power generation. Um, I think at that time they were planning to build about 20 or 25,000 megawatts, mostly merchant. And for me, I was intrigued by the opportunity to set up a new shop and trade around those spread options and and build a customer business. So I, so I took the leap, but yeah, I think there was, it was, I got lucky in some ways. And then I stepped into another challenging situation at Calpine. Yeah. The, the it's a fascinating move as well, right? Because you've come from an organization that's whose DNA, you know, right from you know, skilling Ken laid down was trading into an organization. And, and this was, you know, mirrored again, I, this is some of the fascinating element to me is this is mirrored by lots of people who were making this transition a couple of years later, right? Especially when Enron went down, you had all the European merchants, you know, hoovering up talent uh, and building merchant platforms. You'd done it two, three years earlier. That's, but that's quite a, you know, how, how were you convinced that Calpine understood trading, understood risk and understood what it would take to build a world-class team in a vastly different compensation regime than your average utility would be used to. That's that's where I think I was naive, right? Because I I didn't know if Calpine really would. You know, I met with the management team. They understood that they were going to have risks that they didn't have formerly because most of their power plants were contracted, you know, under long-term agreements, the old PURPA contracts. So they understood what they were stepping into, but they def definitely didn't fully understand what needed to be built. And I got, and I was fortunate that along the way, as I educated them uh, with what was coming, because they went from 20,000 megawatts pretty quickly to announcing 50,000 megawatts, which would have made us, you know, largest consumer of natural gas in the US. But fortunately for me, they, they were willing to make the investment we had to make. And we ultimately built out it, you know, trade for a couple hundred, 250 people or so, and did what, needed to be done. But I'll tell you, I love, I love the culture of Calpine. It was, it was so different than Enron. I loved Enron too, but Calpine was really a team atmosphere, family atmosphere. Our founder, this guy, Pete Cartwright, who recently passed away, great man, a visionary, you know, he had the right idea. You know, he was, he was, uh, he realized that all the coal plants in America needed to be replaced by what seemed to be gas fire generation at that time. But but his timing was off and, and he underestimated the pushback from the utilities. And, and like any trade, timing's everything. And he ultimately didn't pivot, pivot quickly enough. And 
but he was always thinking really big. And so I just I'll share a quick story. Late in the game, we were in a conference room figuring out really how to survive. And Pete pulls me over to a globe and he said, Paul, don't you think we should focus on getting a pipeline built from Alaska to California for natural gas? And he said, I'd like you to go meet with the governor of Alaska to talk to him about the opportunity. And and I'm thinking, damn, this guy, I mean, talk <laughs> about a visionary, right? He's thinking big, even when we're up against the ropes. That was one thing I was thinking. That, the other thing I was thinking is, man, I hope he doesn't ask me to put the flight on my own credit card because we are, we're in tough situation here. But, but I went because I had a lot of respect for him as a person and a leader. Uh, but he was, he was all in on the merchant generation trade. And it ultimately got him and the rest of the management team in California replaced, which was, which was tough to witness. Mm. But for me, that time at Calpine was an important step in my career. I became president of Calpine Energy Services. We built a, a significant trading business in every market in the U.S., and as they built their generation from 20 to 50,000 megawatts, you may remember this, but the capital markets were rewarding Calpine for every plant we announced. I mean, literally, we'd announce a plant, stocks up three bucks. And because I was the markets person, I was pulled in all the earnings calls, all the investor days. And that was a lot of fun while the stock went from 40 to, I guess, the high was probably about 450 split adjusted. Less fun while the stock spiraled back to zero. Over, over the next few years. But it was a tough time, but I grew up quickly and learned a lot on that journey. But context for what was happening in the industry, after Enron blew up, most of the energy merchants got hammered. Um, I remember at one point I was at a UBS conference and there was you know eight or nine of us that led the different businesses up on stage and 500 people in the room. And it was, it was we were getting slaughtered. But what was happening is there was just a heightened sensitivity to credit risk after Enron went down. So liquidity dried up. Many of those companies were in the middle of, like us, big construction programs. And we were in the middle of a $5 billion construction program at, while the power markets collapsed. And then the capital markets shut down. So it was a challenging time for everyone. And I was uh, still a young guy. And I was just trying to keep our business afloat and find capital for our trading business. Yeah, because this was, again, mirrored across, as you say, all of the other merchants and, and most of them, or some of them don't cease to exist subsequently. Others went on this same transition of being bought by or, you know, investors and so on. Just before we get to that point, you, you kind of <laughs> skirted over it. I mean, you, how did you build a 200-person business? Because it wasn't like there in, in, there's analogies to today. It's not like there was a huge amount of talent, right? This was a very young industry. There was relatively few players. Those players in 99, right? You know, Enron was the griller in the room, being able to hoover up any talent it wanted. You know, you were competing against El Paso, AEP, all these names you've mentioned. How did you do that? Well, I hired a bunch of people from Enron. So, that, you know, the first, first <laughs> thing I did is I'm like, I need middle office people. And I found the two best middle office people that I knew of it. it at Enron, and we started building risk books, right? It was that literally in Excel. Uh, you know, we knew we had spread options. Let's start building out our risk books. Obviously, that changed over time, and we built the right systems and things. But yeah, and then I found people that I knew were maybe a little bit disenfranchised at Enron and, and brought those people over some big name hires. And people were, we had a good story. You know, my, my, my story at the time was like, look, guys, we can build a very similar customer business. You know, will we be swinging as much VAR as, as we did at Enron? No, but uh, we could build a significant customer business and we have a tremendous amount of optionality in these plants. And we have a program set up to where we can generate a lot of profit and you're getting into a, a stock that's running, right? I mean, Calpine stock, when it went from the equivalent of 40, 450, you know, that was, they were the darling of Wall Street for those years. So, yeah. And then once you start adding good people, then they attract people that worked with them and it kind of feeds on itself. And then once things started to turn for Calpine, really it, it was a story about we're going to find a capital partner. So the last few years, how did the question really is, how did we keep all those good people? And it was about basically we're going to find capital because we felt like we had a Ferrari, the trading business, we just didn't have the fuel. 
and we needed capital. And we got very close with BP. In fact, our board approved the deal where we were going to roll our trading business into BP, but that fell through. And then we're, there were you know several other organizations we talked to, and I was just very clear in my communication with everybody, here's what we're doing. And if you, you want to be a part of it, stick around. And then finally in 2004, we had a meeting with Bear Stearns and we, we spent a year forming our JV called CalBear and announced it in 2005, a few months before the Calpine bankruptcy. But that, I think that carrot kept people on the train and we had a real, it was a family atmosphere too. I mean, I, I never thought I'd leave. I mean, I was uh, about as all in as anybody can be. And I think people really, I still talk to people that were part of that team. And I, I think there's still about 50 to 75 people at Calpine that were there at that time. And we have fond memories of, of those years. Yeah, I mean, in a way you didn't really leave, right? But <laughs> can you just, I guess for our global listeners, so 2004, you're searching for a, a capital partner as you describe it. Similarly, you had, you know, EKT eventually hooked up with Merrill's, another name that no longer really exists. Um, but what was it? What exactly were you looking for? And how would BP or subsequently Bear Stearns fill that void? Yeah, I mean, interestingly, so the merchants are all shrinking dramatically. Banks are starting to become more meaningful players. Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs were always major players. But then you had new players like Deutsche Bank and Citi and Barclays and Fortis. And Bear Stearns didn't have a big investment banking. I mean, they, they had like two guys in their energy investment banking group and, and they weren't a commercial bank, so they weren't a lender. So you, you start saying, well, what, how, do, how do we utilize their balance sheet uh, to build a big business? And my view was that, you know, if you look at the industry, incredibly fragmented, you literally had tens of thousands of players across the energy value chain, and all of them have physical risks they're trying to manage, right? And most of the true arbitrage, whether it's like in the nat gas, natural gas markets or power markets, it was all physical. I mean, there were some in the financial markets, but ultimately you needed to be very physical, like intraday power, over the weekend, nat gas, having storage and all that. that that's how we would differentiate ourselves. So when we went to Bear Stearns, our business model was basically that, totally independent from Calpine's power assets. Give us your balance sheet. We'll build a big business on the back of this trading business. And by the way, we have national presence already because of the assets. But independent from that, we're going to build a big customer business. We'll get bid-ask spread. We're going to get arbitrage in the markets. We'll do structured transactions. And we'll split those profits. And we can't do that without a single A balance sheet. And so basically, that was the deal with, with Bear Stearns. Now, ultimately, after, after the bankruptcy, the, the JV broke up and I joined and I sat out for a while and then I joined Bear Stearns to be president of Bear Energy. So and I guess, ironically enough, I left the energy industry to find safety, <laughs> safety in, on Wall Street. And I joined <laughs> Bear Stearns, which had been around for 80 plus years. And what are the odds that, you know, the tidal wave will get me at Bear Stearns? But, yeah, I didn't I know, know that. I, I thought Cal Bear in the wake of the bankruptcy just became Bear Energy. And it was same people, same team. So there was a gap there. So you basically had to go and rehire them all. Yeah, it was an awkward period, primarily because if it was up to me, I would have hired everybody at Calpine. And it was just hard because we started, you know, I, of course, started hiring people. And then uh, we got that mean letter. And I don't blame Calpine at all. I would have done the same thing. And so we had like some people came over, some people couldn't. And then we had to build, you know, a new team. And fortunately, at that point, now all the people that I worked with at Enron saw what we had built at Calpine and were like, oh, OK, now you have a balance sheet. Yeah, we, we definitely want to be a part of that. So then we were able to build a much, much bigger platform with uh, people and we had a different level of risk capital. Yeah. So we started over um, and we had a great run at Bear Energy. Yeah, I, I, I'd say about a month after I joined Bear. LS Power bought Duke's Merchant Power Assets. And a friend of mine from Calpine, John King, was over there. And I called him and said, look, John, I'll, we'll manage your assets for practically nothing. 
because I, I knew that if we could get an immediate national presence, that would enable us to build a much bigger business, right? People aren't going to know what bare energy is. We've got to, we've got to put ourselves on the map. So we got that deal done. And then, and then we hired a big natural gas team from Sequent led by Pat Strange. And then we purchased maybe a year and a half later, we purchased Williams power company. And you, and that was the big Williams trading business. You know, that at one point had a thousand people in Tulsa, but they had 6,000 megawatts of power assets under long-term tolls billions of dollars in lease payments and all requirements, load deals with uh, the co-ops in Georgia. And we took that and, and at Bear, we we basically bought that business. And that lined up really well with our vision to be the most physical player. And we integrated members of their Tulsa team into Houston. And so we built in within a couple of years, a very big business. And then, of course, you know, we started hearing rumblings about Bear Stern's exposure to mortgages. And uh, bear yeah. stock starts to decline, right? I and, think you'd just given me your first, our first retainer <laughs> to work for, for bear energy about two, two oh, seconds before that happened. Not, hey, <laughs> I, I want to apologize for that. Ball, <laughs> but anyway, so, so just before we get there though, there's a, there's a couple of comments. One is, so at the same time, you've got, we've already mentioned it, other banks are doing exactly the same. And you're pointing to what they were bringing was a balance sheet. And there's also a human story here as well, because it had also been, you know, if you're been a mid-level trader or risk risk analyst or whatever it might have been, I mean, you, you've had a bruising run of it, right? You've probably seen your wealth disappear in one of Enron or El Paso or Duke or whatever it might have been. You've then hopefully found a home at another merchant, which very quickly has been bought by a bank. And, you know, again, you might have had some wealth destruction in that process. And, and, and it is, you know, it's worth saying that the banks were seen as kind of this Nirvana-like home of, you know, obviously oodles of credit. There was this sort of all of the big customer base that you could provide hedging services to, not as relevant in the Bear Stearns story, certainly relevant in the sort of the pitch for J.P. Morgan subsequently. But it was very much sort of... Um, quite a it was really exciting time and i think you know it, what would subsequently transpire was quite tragic in a way but there were some i guess my, i'm leading up very slowly to this question of there are also some big differences in working for an investment bank versus a merchant that had some profound impacts on the community not least you know compensation regimes were ultimately quite even higher right i mean can you just talk to what the differences of working for a bank was compared to the previous two incarnations for a merchant yeah and i guess i should say that bear stearns was entirely different than jp morgan and so I, we had to reboot or reset on and i guess we'll get to jp morgan but we had to re reset each time but you know first thing is um you know bear stearns has been around for 80 years and Ace Greenberg and Jimmy Kane and all those people that built that company had a certain way of looking at the world. And I stepped in as a senior managing director, but I didn't fully understand the Bear Stearns view of the world. You know, and again, ironically enough, one of the things that Bear Stearns was about, I love, I love that they were they had a culture of long-term employment. I mean, there were literally I ran into a guy that was 90 in the elevator that was going up to sit at his desk to make calls to his clients. You know, it was a it was a very different kind of investment bank. But ironically enough, I was starting to say that um, one of the things they talked about all the time is that we live in a world of possibilities, not probabilities. And when we brought the Williams deal to them, they literally all they cared about was how much could we lose. It, okay. Expected return, RI, yeah, got it. But how much could, how much can we lose? So ultimately, you know, the way that, you know, Bear Stearns went down, that was oddly tragic because Ace Greenberg and Jimmy Kane really came from an environment where they just wanted to make sure they always understood what their total capital at risk was. And um, so that was, that was a tough way for, the, for them to end. But yeah, to answer your question more directly, I'd say we just had to reset learn the culture, learn what they were all about, and then build a business accordingly. And they loved our business model because it definitely fit in, you know, the, the customer business, the bid-ask spread, structured deals, lower VAR. You know, we weren't going to be swinging a big stick 
in, in the speculative markets. They really like that. The HC Insider podcast is brought to you by HC Group, a retained search, intelligence and advisory firm focused solely on the global energy and commodity sector. With six locations across Asia, Europe and the Americas and over 50 consultants. To find out more, go to our website, hcgroup.global. There, you can also sign up for our HC Insider content for more interviews and white papers on relevant trends and talent impacts in the commodities world. Okay, so you start hearing, what's this? This is 2007, I guess, in early 2007, these rumblings about these hedge funds focused in real estate. I guess, you know, start there. Yeah. Well, I guess there's, you know, after going through what we all went through, when you start hearing things like that, you, you're probably <laughs> a little cool? bit more aware <laughs> yeah. of the risk. Honestly, it was surreal. I mean, that I'll just take you quickly to the last week because you just can't make this stuff up. But Bear stock was about fifty dollars, I'd say, and I don't, I don't remember exactly, but we're early March two thousand eight. I was in New York for a roundtable of leaders. I can't remember what they called us, but we weren't the top guys, but called the next level down. And the newly appointed CEO Alan Schwartz came in the room and said, "You know, everything's fine. Uh, we have plenty of liquidity." And of course, based on my experience, when a CEO mentions liquidity, it's never a good sign. Mm. And, and I remember the guy that ran our hedge fund business really looked like a ghost because funds were pulling their cash. But I left that meeting thinking we were probably in trouble, but it seemed like we'd have a few months at least. And I flew home to Houston on Thursday. The stock was gapping down. On Friday morning, it traded down to the teens. I got a call from this woman, Wendy Dimonchot at Bear, and she said, hey, we need you back in New York. And it was spring break week. And I told her, I, I can't come. I'm taking my kids skiing tomorrow. They're like eight, six, and four. My wife doesn't ski. And she said, Paul, we're either going to sell our company, your business to JP Morgan over the weekend, or it's over on Sunday night. So I called Joy and, and basically said, hey, uh, honey, change of plans. Uh, and, and I flew to New York. Saturday morning, Joy took the kids skiing, presented our business to J.P. Morgan all day on Saturday, and it, and then flew to Colorado that night. But I was definitely discouraged. I mean, our business was worth, I think, conservatively a billion dollars or so at that time. So I expected them to take the business, fire the team, and then it would just be another example of you know bad luck. But I got to Colorado, I'd say around 3 a.m., the phone rang at 6 a.m. It was my future boss, Blythe Masters, and she said, hey, I understand you're frustrated, uh, but we love your business and we're flying a team to Houston today and we'll be on your trade floor tomorrow. I think you should be there. And of course I should. And, and so Joy woke up and she said, hey, you made it. And I said, well, not really. And I literally put the kids on skis and got a car back to the airport. And over the next two days, we cut a deal with JP Morgan to uh, to hire all 300 people. And uh, I became the co-head of global energy for J.P. Morgan Commodities. And, and this was just orientated us as the timeline. So this is 2008 now, is it? Right. Spring of 2008. Yeah. And so we haven't even gone through the, the financial crisis yet, right? This is, the, this is the early stages of the financial crisis. The Lehmans of the world are starting to show some cracks. But, but you know, Bear was the first. Bear was really the first to go down. But the mortgages... Okay. Morgan's problems becoming very clear. And because JP Morgan, crucially at that time as well, were, hadn't really cracked commodities either, had they? So they were sort of one of the few very big banks that were looking over their shoulder at what City was up to, you know, and Merrill Lynch and so forth, making a couple of billion dollars out of commodities saying, well, what are we doing here? Exactly. You know, they, they were in the space for several years. In fact, some really good people were there, uh, but they hadn't really dove in in a big way, definitely not on the physical side. And so it was a it was a great marriage of what they had built, the financial trading and market making. If you needed, you know, the fixed price, NYMEX options, you know, they had a big customer business around that basis to a certain extent, and then more kind of punting into power markets. At the same time, we also built 
over those years a machine to to purchase and absorb trade books. It was a time of consolidation, and we bought several trading businesses. We bought uh, UBS's Canadian business, which was a group of Enron people that we had worked with. Yeah. We acquired Sempra's global business, which was a massive business across all commodities globally. And that really enhanced our crude and products business and base metals business. And so we enjoyed, you know, many years of success together. It was a, it was a really good period of time. And JP Morgan's an incredible company. I mean, one of the greatest companies on the planet and Jamie Dimon's obviously an extraordinary leader. So those, those were good years. And a safe harbor, right, as well. I, I mean, the backdrop to this is absolute, you know, carnage in, in late 2008, 2009, when, you know, the commodity trading businesses were knocking it out of the park and, you know, people were wondering whether they were even going to get a bonus, whether their bank was still going to be around. You know, again, a whole slew of, of wealth destruction as people had accepted sign-ons and guarantees in stocks that you know suddenly didn't exist you know the lehman's had a big team bought by barclays obviously merrill's went to bank of america again it's like you know your career whilst you know you know you through your own talents and leadership have have been at the forefront of this and a little bit of luck as well being at bear stearns not at lehman right this has been a tumultuous time where these traders have seen incredible you know wealth destruction against the backdrop of the greatest opportunity because of kind of these exogenous shocks coming to the industry this time from subprime. Exactly. I mean, and I'm a very optimistic person and I'm always thinking about, you know, the next day, not looking back. But when Bear Stearns collapsed, I mean, I, I remember driving to the airport that morning at Saturday when I was pitching the business and I was talking to myself. I don't think I've ever done that before. I was literally talking to myself in the car. Like, you got to be kidding. I mean, I was literally <laughs> saying things, crazy things. That that night when I when I left, the so uh, we're in there pitching the business to J.P. Morgan. And Wendy came back and, and she said, hey, Paul, we need you to stay till tomorrow. And I looked at her and there was about 20 J.P. Morgan people in the room. And I said, look, I don't know if I work for you or these people, but I've got a 540 flight out of Newark and I'm going. So, so, you know, I was, I was definitely at a point where I was ready to just call it and hang up the cleats. And I called a, a good friend of mine, Bill Reed, and I'll never forget it. Cause I said, Bill, there's no way I'm going to go work for this giant bank, JP Morgan. And he said, Paul, you know, listen, you don't know, this may be the best thing that ever happened to you guys. And, you know, so give it a chance. And he was exactly right. And that's, you know, I think that's reflective of, you know, the just life in general. Sometimes we, we have a tendency to create storms in our lives. And most of the time, uh, we're better off in the long run. We just have to let things play out. And, you know, I know you're not going to say it, so I'll say it. It, it took incredible trust from your team as well, right? Because I can imagine at the same time you're getting calls from JP Morgan and Bear Stearns leadership, you're also getting calls from all of your, you know, this, this family, using your word, that you've built over the last good few years, in a void of information, you know, wondering what the hell's going on, right? You know, and, and having to manage that and, and show leadership to those people, but also be honest about the reality that it might not all work out and so forth. I mean, I can imagine the stress level, the cortisol levels were through the roof, but, you know, this is when kind of leaders are made, right? Well, I'd like to think that I handled those days pretty well. You know, that that's very true about leadership. I think it's easy to lead when things are going well. For most of my career in the energy business, things weren't going that well. And so, you know, we were constantly getting kicked in the face. And, and you know, like you said, you know, it's, it's important when, when you're going through periods of time like that to be honest. And what was interesting about J.P. Morgan is that they did have a huge investment banking business. They were a big lender. They were excited about our business. And, uh, you know, I went and I met with the the CEOs of the investment bank, uh, Steve Black and Bill Winters at that time. And they were really fired up about bare energy. And uh, and so then I could go back to the team and say, look, you know, it it appears like this could be a really great outcome. Let's give it some time. And if it's not, you know, you all have the right to leave at any point, right? Let's just, let's play out the option. And of course it, some people left, you know, you know, JP Morgan was, from a regulatory standpoint and compliance standpoint, 
very challenging relative to Bear Stearns. You know, we had we had some LNG business. We were doing some business with Chenier. And uh, we got on the first, the guys that were doing that business got on the first call. And there were 45 people from JP Morgan on the call to learn about what we were doing. And those two guys, I won't say names, came to my office and said, hey, Paul, you know, look, this is going to be great. Good luck. Yeah, we're out of here. <laughs> we can't. We're, <laughs> we're not up for this. But for most of the people, they stayed. And JP Morgan committed to hiring everybody, which was a really big, important thing for me uh, to stay. Uh, once I knew they were going to take everybody, then I then I was comfortable sticking around. Yeah, yeah. And, and it kind of, again, it maps the commodities arc of the story arc right which is we we're, we're so we're now at the the height of the power of the banks albeit they've got sort of these challenges in the broader bank about the global you know the the resulting fallout from the global financial crisis it seems to be the perfect home for commodities your your alternative options thinking about those two individuals and perhaps guessing you know are to go to a hedge fund which subsequently in the long view with it with some notable exceptions turned out to be potentially a wrong move in the wake of what happened to commodity prices in the super cycle and so forth, you know, or alternatively to another bank. You know, there weren't, you know, this, the trading houses had yet to really arrive on the scene. They were still very much focused in physical and particularly in oil. So, so JP Morgan's at the height of its power, you know, the printing, whatever it was, a couple of billion dollars, you're, you're hoovering up businesses, like you said, and you're, you're suddenly JP Morgan under your leadership is a co-leadership is, is a, a behemoth, uh, in in the commodities world in the matter of a, a couple of years. And then it all starts to, well, I don't know, fall apart's the right word, but basically, you know, uh, it all starts to get sold off in various pieces is the end of that story. How did th- how did that happen? Why, what were the causes behind that? And, you know, and it mirrored what happened in other, with other banks' commodity business, but what were the structural reasons that JP Morgan no longer has the size and the physical commodities business it used to have? Well, at that time, and I'd say like early, call it 2012, 2013, all banks faced regulatory pressure. And, and it was a pressure to exit physical businesses. And at some point, uh, JP Morgan leadership decided that, you know what, we're going to, we're going to get out of not all commodities, but let's get out of the physical businesses that we've been, that we've owned. And so, yeah, 2013, we started a process to sell the business with the hope that it would land in the hands of someone that would want to hire most of the team. And uh, ultimately, Mercuria bought the physical business from JP Morgan. And yeah, I've got to got to give a lot of credit to Danny and Marco and the leader of from from the Mercuria side was Shamit Konar, uh, who's now the CEO of Pilot Flying J. But Doing uh, well, the lead yeah. on the deal, and we had a very large book with, I mean, billions of dollars in lease payments, twenty-year tolls, all requirements, deals with co-ops. This was not, hey, just you know, novate over the financial trades, pipeline and storage capacity. So I really expected the sale to go to a, a shop with a much stronger balance sheet, but J.P. Morgan leadership chose Mercuria, which was a very good outcome for many of the people in our shop, and. And they built a strong business in North American Power and Gas. So I, I that's I love seeing that. I just had a beer with a friend that's still there, and it's fantastic. You know, some people left because they didn't want to be a part of that world, but uh, I'm happy for the people that stuck around. And of course, you know, over the last five years, everybody's found good homes, and they're all doing really well. Yeah, and 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 again, the last five years or the last decade since that global financial crisis was the rise of the trading houses, you know, who themselves have now become key lenders in the uh, in the commodities sector, sometimes becoming unstuck. But park that there, you know, and and we've done some episodes historically on you know who the next participants might be and 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 what they might look like. But you don't go to Mercuria. Why? Why not? Well, I considered it, and uh, I enjoyed meeting. Danny and Marco and spending some time with them. And I, I was planning on, I had, I think I had flights to Geneva to talk about a role they offered, but I was, a, I was a volunteer at a local high school for low income students called Crystal Ray Jesuit. And the founding president right about that time, this uh, young priest father, TJ Martinez was diagnosed with stage four stomach cancer. 
uh, at age, I think, 42 or 43. And we were all crushed because he was an amazing guy, and you, you never want to see that. And I got a call one day that, on the trade floor from my wife, and she said, are you sitting down? And uh, she said, TJ thinks you should be the next president of Krista Ray Jesuit. And, and of course, my immediate reaction was honored, humbled, pretty emotional at that point. But I didn't know anything about running a school. <laughs> and I was thinking, there's got to be somebody in this city that knows how to do that job better than me. And if it's not totally obvious, running a Catholic high school is about as far from running a trading business as you can find. I needed to come up with an entirely new vocabulary. But, but they were looking for an interim headmaster, and I felt like I could do anything for six months. And I was at a point in my life when I wanted to give back. You know, I, I, I guess I was a little less passionate about the trading business. You know, when we started Bear Stearns, I would have done anything to find success. I mean, I was as all in as you could possibly find. And I think I just started getting a little bit tired, you know, just tired and not really as fired up. And I went to a Jesuit high school and, you know, I, I wanted to start giving back at that point in my life. And so they got me definitely at a, at a weak moment. I took the job and really fell in love with the mission and the students and the families. And I, I put my name in the hat to be the official president. And I was selected and I stayed as president for five years. I was a, basically ran a high school from 2014 to 2019. And those were some of the most rewarding years of my life. It mm. really changed my view of the world. And, and, and I decided that I'd spend, you know, I considered, I got a couple calls late in that period and to go back into commodities. And I really just decided I'm going to spend the rest of my working years trying to help as many people as I can. And, uh, and that's what ultimately led me to career spring and, uh, I guess we'll get into that too. Yeah, and sorry for those couple of calls. I think one or two of them came from me. But I, I think you better describe what a remarkable school Christo Ray is, and and what you know what it what its mission is, and and how it did open your eyes. Because I think you know for me this is kind of the the other that other track of the story, the magical piece about you know it all be ultimately being about people and the qualities that enabled you to help your teams grow those teams and have people have lifelong loyalty towards you and affection plays as well into how you led the school. But can you just give a, for people who don't know what Christo Ray is? Sure. Christo Ray Jesuit is a, is a private high school that provides a Jesuit education. So Catholic school to students that otherwise couldn't afford that type of education. So every student's on scholarship. And one of the most interesting things about the model is that every student from the freshmen through the seniors work at uh, one of 150 plus companies across, in this case, Houston, and the money they earn covers about 50% of the cost of their education. And then the rest, the remainder, um, every, every student pays something, usually about $25 a month. And then the remainder of the cost is covered through scholarships for donations. And so it's literally a match program where the students are working to cover half and then donors come in and, and sponsor the student for the other half. And it's a remarkable model. There's 39 of these schools across the country. And it, it was just for me personally to get to know those students and families. And like I said, it really, it really changed my view of the world and got me down this path that I'm on now. Yeah. And, you know, we had some interactions at that time as well. And I, I mean, I think it also, I imagine as well, you know, you'd come from Kellogg, you'd, you'd, you'd had an incredibly successful career and all the financial rewards that came with that. You know, I imagine this also opened your eyes, as it did mine, frankly, as well, in just the limited tiny interactions that we had with Christo Ray. We're talking, when you say underprivileged, we're talking about communities that face profound challenges of not only lack of access to resources, but lack of access to some of the things that I think might shock certainly our European listeners about how underprivileged these communities can be and how marginalized. Can you just help us understand that a bit more? Because that's, I think, crucial to what subsequently transpired with you launching Career Spring. I think it starts with, with education and uh you know, I didn't spend time in the public school system, so I, I, I need to be careful about staying in my lane. But my experience is that um, 
the the education system in urban America is broken. And so, you know, just starting with early childhood education, there's there's too many students that by third grade are, you know, a year or two behind in reading level. And to a certain extent, when when you get to middle school, if you're a few years behind, the bet is made. I mean, there's always outliers where kids can break out, but it, it gets it gets to be very challenging to get out of uh, the situation they're in. And so I think a big part of it's education. I, I know there's other factors, you know, obviously food deserts and lots of other things that that I saw while I was at Crystal Ray Jesuit, but the education is the big challenge. So the beautiful thing about Crystal Ray Jesuit is that we were getting students that were maybe a year and a half to two years behind in most cases, and we could get them to be college ready. hundred percent of the students uh, were accepted into college. So, but if a student was at a fourth or fifth grade reading level, we couldn't do anything for them, right? It, we, we, we could go about two years back, uh, but anything beyond that, uh, it was just too much. And so in Houston, for example, 80% of the students are considered low income. And you just think about what that means for the next generation of talent. And it's frightening. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's as you said, like we you know that education, the access to books, all of those things that, and again, I think this is, it's just one of those things that perhaps is, can feel quite alien uh, unless you've lived it and seen it. Can, if you, you know, come from, Switzerland or wherever it might be, where there's just a much higher expectation of public education and uh, expectation of, of children not falling behind. So that you're there for five years, and we will put links to Christo Ray in the show notes as well, because I know you're still affiliated and you know an incredible cause. And if you, if you live in Houston and work in Houston, you'll see Christo Ray kids going up in the elevator and down to various offices doing their, doing their work experience. That then translates directly into what's become a very purpose and mission led life around young people and education you you launch career spring which is really why we're doing this podcast this is something uh, very close to 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 my company very close to me but you know and just a marvel at what you're achieving here and i think it's incredibly uh, important and is again part of this thread of a talent story which really feels central to this discussion and to to what you've achieved so so what is it you thought was lacking that Career Spring could solve for? I'd say in my second or third year at Crystal Ray Jesuit, I, I started to get concerned about the employment side of the picture for the low income population. And, you know, as I mentioned, 80% of the students in Houston are considered low income. And as I look out the next 10 to 15 years, I think AI will replace many of the jobs their parents have historically held. And while the country may be able to support those people with some form of universal basic income, we'll see where all, that all goes. You know, I believe strongly that everyone deserves the dignity of work. And so, you know, I started to really dig into that. I also found many of our students were doing everything right. They'd go to college. They'd work their tails off. Many of them were making it to and through, whether it's two-year or four-year degree. But they lacked the network, information, and social capital to find meaningful employment. They just didn't know anyone. And to use a to use a football analogy, they literally go, you know, 99 yards over 21 years. They get to the one. We're all cheering for them. And I'd call every student that graduated from college to congratulate them. But they need that last block because if they don't know anyone and they move home and they start applying to jobs on Indeed and they don't hear anything. Well, then after six months, they need to go take a job that has nothing to do with what they studied. Right. So to me, that was a great shame. And I knew as you know, employers are struggling to find talent, right? And, and demographics are shifting rapidly and baby boomers are retiring. And, you know, we're, Career Springs about, and we'll talk about what we do, but we're about socioeconomic backgrounds, not necessarily diversity. The two happen to be very highly correlated in urban America, but most people don't know this, but in Houston, only 20% of the population under the age of 21 is white. In 1980, I think it was 80% of the population was Anglo. So, you know, there's, I think, I think employers realize that diversity and inclusion initiatives are a good thing, arguably the right thing to do. You know, I'm doing it because my heart tells me it's the right thing to do. But if you step back, it's really a necessity. I mean, employers will need to find different ways to attract 
train and retain the next generation of talent. It's that simple. Those companies that that do will have an advantage over those companies that don't. And, and it's American. So, and you go full circle back to Enron, and you and I talk about this quite a bit, but. What made Enron amazing, albeit that you were taking from this highly rarefied cadre of rich, privileged white people, frankly, for the most part, right? What made Enron tick and what what really, you know, what inspired you, you said, was a meritocracy, right? And talk about meritocracy in this context. If you've managed to graduate college with all of those headwinds, I mean, these are also very special kids as well, right? I mean, these are these are kids who know how to deal with adversity, kids who know how to deal with challenge and commensurately also very, very hungry to succeed, you know, and fulfill their potential. Yeah, I, I listen, first of all, you know, I'm, I'm a capitalist and um, and I believe in meritocracy. And, you know, and before I got to Crystal Ray Jesuit, I would have said, you know, pull your bootstraps up kind of mindset. But the reality is for most of this population, that's not really a fair thing to say. For example, the R squared on ACT scores to income levels is 0.95. Literally, it's like a straight line. If you are wealthy, you get 35s. If you are really low, low, low income, you get a 12. And, and it's, I mean, it's like statistically basically shows that yeah. it's it's not that easy. Pull your bootstraps. It's America. Work your tail off. Yeah, I mean, there, everyone has an opportunity in America, which is fantastic, but it's not equal. And, you know, so any listeners that want to have a debate with me about that over a beer, I'm happy to down the road. But, you know, I started to become more aware of that. And at the same time, there are opportunities. Here's what's amazing about this whole thing. Employers are struggling to find talent. 30% of all college students are first generation, meaning their parents didn't go to college or didn't get a degree. So you have millions of Americans that are trying to do the right thing, and you've got all these jobs that need to be filled. And so it's really about just putting the two groups together, you know, and that and that's a lot of what career springs about. And, you know, I would often get calls from alumni asking, I was the only business person they knew, and they'd call me and say, Mr. Rasoli, do you know anyone hiring a marketing major or a speech and language pathologist or whatever it was they were studying? And I would say, I don't, but give me a day or two. And I'd start sending texts and emails. And it almost always, one of those introductions would always lead to a job or another introduction or an internship or something that was good. So, so I began to think if through a few calls and introductions, I'm able to get a kid on a path to full employment rather than underemployment, that's a great use of 20 minutes of my time. I mean, there couldn't be a better use of 20 minutes of my time. There's tremendous leverage in that. I mean, like I said, they've, they've worked 21 years to get to this point, and I just need to spend 20 minutes to open the door for them, that last block. I mean, that to me is an absolute no-brainer. So then I started to think, well, how can I do that at scale for tens of thousands of students in the U.S.? How, how, how do we do what I've been doing for 25 kids a year for every first-gen student in America and and that's what led me down this path to to create Career Spring, and we're basically an online networking and job placement platform for first generation and or low income students. Yeah, nonprofit. Can you, I, I mean, I'm in danger of bearing the lead here. So, what exactly is nonprofit? Can you just talk to us exactly what it does, just so we're all on the same page? So we're primarily doing three things. We're informing. We have a career video library where we're gathering videos from professionals that just talk about what they do every day, day in the life, path to the profession, work-life balance, things they like, things they don't like. We currently have 450 videos uh, with the expectation that we'll add a video for every possible prof profession. And you can think of that as like an online career fair. So incredibly scalable. I think we've had like 15,000 views so far, but if we don't have hit 100,000 views within five years, I'd be I'd be really disappointed. But just giving them the North Star, the information that they need to be able to take the next step. The second thing we're doing is we have an advisor forum, and this is where students can literally schedule one-on-one -on -one video consultations with professionals in their areas of interest. So, and this is that leverage of social capital, right? Students can go on our platform if they want to be a psychologist in Chicago and have 
15 different relationships built so that when they're ready to get a job or an internship, they have a network built already. And, and they understand the space a lot better too. We currently have 1,100 professionals on the platform and we'll have thousands. You know, the bet we're making is that most people don't have time to be a mentor, like a one-on-one for an hour every Thursday. But I think most people would take a call from a low-income student that wants to work hard and do the whatever profession they're doing. So that's the bet we're making. So far, that's been true. And then the third thing we're doing are job placement services. We're asking employers to post entry-level jobs and internships on our platform, and we'll screen candidates and prepare those students for interviews and bring them quality candidates. And uh, we've had a lot of success so far. We, we've launched in, uh, we started in New York, Chicago, and Houston, but we've now launched in Atlanta, Boston, Dallas, the Bay Area. We're about to launch in Detroit and LA. We have 225 partners. And uh, thanks to HC for being one of them. And uh, I think we're up to 12,000 users on the platform. We have students from more than 540 colleges, universities already using the platform. It's a free resource. So every nonprofit, community org, and college in America that has first generation Pell Grant recipient students can give career spring to, to those students. Uh, so it's going really well, but we still have a long way to go. I mean, we're our our vision is that every first gen student in America will find meaningful employment. So we're thinking really big. Ultimately, you know, I hope that uh, I expect that we'll become the number one networking and recruiting firm for first gen and low income students in America. Absolutely phenomenal. You you asked for do I mean just on the on the buyers side, right? For the companies out there, and you know. I'm sure people listening to it right right now, you know, will recognize at least in the US where the service is available right today, you know, that their organization is is struggling to hire motivated top quality graduates, you know, and, and would be interested in this service. I think at the moment you ask for a donation from companies that are hiring from the Career Spring network. Yeah, it's not mandatory. You know, what we typically do, our revenue model is that we'll rely on the corporate partners to make donations to CareerSpring, but we have many corporate par- partners that don't make donations. We'll still allow them to have volunteers on the platform, post jobs on the platform. We'll hustle to make matches. And then hopefully over time, they'll choose to be a sponsor like you all did. We, we need more partners and we need more advisors. You know, we have 225 or so partners. I'd like to get that to 500 partners over the next couple of years. And I think we're, we're a very elegant solution to the ESG and DEI initiatives that companies are struggling with. It, you know, if you think about just from a S perspective in ESG, we're a very tangible, efficient volunteer opportunity for employees to serve their communities. And they don't even need to leave their, leave their office, right? It's not, I need to go down to Crystal Ray for the day and paint walls. It's, no, listen, over the next year or so, maybe you'll have six calls and you could do it from your office and then get back to work. And, you know, we're providing a pipeline of gritty, determined quality candidates who understand the importance of hard work. You know, most of these kids have worked all through college. And isn't, isn't that exactly what we want to find from, from an employer standpoint? Yeah. So if you're listening right now, so if you're an individual, a professional, and I presume this could be someone globally as well, you know, you can sign up and we'll put links on, on to the to the platform to become a counselor, to either create a video or to be available for these individuals to have a conversation with you. And like you say, you know, just here's here's what my career is, here's what my role is, here's some advice. And that can be a, a one-off conversation or it can, can be more. There's that. And then there's also, if you are in a leadership position at your organization, or you can walk down the hall to HR, you know, this is an incredible, as you say, elegant solution, an incredible resource, and frankly, beyond ESG, right? It's a, it's an opportunity to find highly talented young individuals who are every organization is crying out for in, in, in a world where we've got silent quitting and all this kind of stuff. Those are the really the two tangible ways Today, individuals listening to this can can support CareerSpring and, and hopefully your organization will consider coming a partner and donating to CareerSpring to enable you to fund the work you're doing in those existing cities, but also grow. 
where does this i know i know you've got a hell of a lot of north america to cover as well is there any and i'm speaking selfishly for my for the uk and elsewhere i mean is this seems like a model that has global applications well we already have some advisors in europe so certainly immediately we'd love to add more advisors globally in fact the other night we had a webinar and there was a young lady from london and she was like you know one of the advisees and she said do you have any jobs in london yet and we said well, we don't uh, but you could talk to advisors. And so she's using that piece of the puzzle. Yeah, we we have big plans. And like I said, I mean, we've, we're now entering our ninth city. But because it's an online platform, the expansion's happening naturally. And so we're going to, as long as we can fund it, continue to um, add cities every year. And then at some point, I'd expect us to be probably in Europe first and then see see where it leads. And uh, thanks for being willing to put the uh, the link up for Career Spring. If, if you're listening and you're interested in participating in any way, you can also go to careerspring.org. And at the top right of our website, there's an I'm interested link. Uh, you can click on that and specify how you'd like to participate and someone will get back to you within a couple of days. And I loved your, Paul, the, the point about going down the hallway uh, to your HR departments, because this is a good thing for the company. I've yet to have a conversation where a company, and I've had hundreds of conversations, as you can imagine, where they said anything but this is great. And so it's it's a good thing for the company. It's obviously helping a lot of kids. So thanks to everybody for listening and, and considering uh, being a part of this. Well, I think it's remarkable. I think you are uh, an inspirational individual. And, um, you know, I think that... Uh, you know, Career Spring is, you say we're a partner. It's, I think it's an absolutely phenomenal platform. And, um, you know, I think people listening to your story will realize why some of your people and your team have followed you and, and you're still, you know, reconnecting with all your colleagues and roundly loved by them, even though you aren't in the commodities industry anymore and uh, are much missed. But, um, you know, thanks very much for your time, Paul. It's been a, I've really enjoyed it. Um, it's been a fascinating story and, and I think everyone listening will wish you the greatest of success and hopefully can become a part of it. Thanks again, Paul. This was a lot of fun. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and HC Group, a search and advisory firm dedicated to the commodity markets, visit our website at www.hcgroup.global. There you can find out more about our services and our offices around the world. There you can also find more content from interviews to insight pieces to more podcasts focused on the commodity value chains. Thanks again for listening.